What are kids really thinking and feeling? Sometimes it's hard to know. The thousands of letters and emails kids send to Highlights Magazine every year help us keep our finger on the pulse of kids. We think they can also help you. So each week on this podcast, we share a few of the messages we've received from kids and we discuss them with an expert. Lean in and listen to learn what kids want their grown-ups to know about being a kid today. I'm Christine French-Cully, and you're listening to Dear Highlights. Dear Highlights, I have a problem with controlling my temper. I your at night, and I miss I my cats. I get keys. I want your highlights. Dear Highlights. Dear Highlights. Dear Highlights. It's part of the human experience, grieving the people we love who die. It's as true for children as it is for adults. But how do we best support grieving children? Our guest today is Dr. David Schoenfeld, a developmental behavioral pediatrician who founded and directs the National Center for School Crisis and Bereavement, located at Children's Hospital Los Angeles. He is also a member of the Executive Committee of the American Academy of Pediatrics Council on Children and Disasters. For more than 30 years, Dr. Schoenfeld has provided consultation and training on pediatric bereavement in the aftermath of numerous school crisis events and disasters within the United States and abroad. Dr. Schoenfeld, welcome. It's good to be here. We're grateful to have you with us today to discuss the important topic of bereavement. At Highlights, we receive and answer thousands of letters from children annually. And of course, we hear from kids who are grieving. The pandemic means that this year, more families than usual are dealing with the loss of a loved one. So I'd like to start our conversation today by first sharing a few of these letters. Uh, Here's one from a nine-year-old. Dear Highlights, my dad died. Nothing feels right around our house. Nothing feels the same. Every time I do something, I realize that I did it with my dad. These pains are coming on me harder than I thought. And here's another one. Dear Highlights, my grandma died in August, but I can't stop seeing her in my dreams. When I see her in my dreams, I wake up. And when I don't wear my glasses, I see her. I want to hug her, but she is dead. What should I do? And finally, just a couple more. Dear Highlights, my aunt died recently in a car accident. I haven't seen my uncle since the accident. He's coming over soon. I'm not sure how I should act towards him. What should I do? And that's from Jessica, who was 12. And then similarly, another child wrote to us and said, my dad cries every day when he gets reminded about my mom who passed away. How can I help him feel better or make him happy? Those are some pretty touching uh, letters. We're here today to talk about how we can support children in grieving, but one of the themes we do hear in letters from children, like the last two I read, is a child wondering how they can help another grown-up in their family who's also grieving. Many times a parent or a caregiver is grieving the same loss that their child is, and they might wonder, does it hurt my kid to show them how sad or angry I am? Are there some parts of our grief we should keep from kids, or are there parts that we should be sure to show them? Well, I think the answer to the question for both of those is yes. Um, There are parts that we should be sharing with children, and there probably are some parts that we needn't share with children that they really should be shared more with adults that can help us process some of our 
you know, deeper in, in personal issues. Um, so, for example, um, you know, I, I had one situation where a parent um, demonstrated some suicidal uh, behavior in front of the child. And obviously that is not something that should be witnessed by children, and it's something that needs professional assistance. Um, but if you don't share anything that communicates to children that feelings around uh, grief and loss um, after a death of someone close to you are not appropriate to share, or that the parent is somehow not experiencing them. And I think if parents hide all of their distress, it leaves the children to grieve alone, and it leaves them without effective models for how to grieve and how to experience distress and be able to continue um, your functioning even while you are grieving. I remember I was um, providing some counseling for a boy who was maybe about eight years old. His mother had died after a long illness, and his father was a professional who uh, worked at the same medical school I was at. And so he had effectively changed almost everything in his life uh, within a year of the death of his wife to try and... Um, you know, to, to try and help his family and himself recover. So he changed from a private practice to an academic practice because he thought that would give him more time with the kids. He sold the house. Uh, he sold both of his cars. He remarried. So, I mean, he made many changes in his life. Um, and all of them, I think, were good decisions, um, but they made the child feel that somehow the dad was just trying to forget um, his mother. Um, and he was coming in for counseling. He was a very bright, precocious kid doing well. And I remember on one visit, probably about a year or maybe it was nine months afterwards, the dad talked about how he was going, he had some stones in his pocket that he had gotten when he was in Israel. And on the one year mark uh, after the death, he was going to place it on the grave of his uh, wife. And so the kid just looked at him and, I, and he said, Dad, do you did you pick those up in Israel? And he said, yes. And he said, so you miss mom too. And, and the dad just looked at him and said, of course I do. And he said, I didn't know that. That was our last session. He didn't need to come to talk to me about a grief of, related to his mother because he realized he could now talk to his dad. But his dad was trying so hard to, you know, be effective and be resilient that he hadn't allowed his son to see that he actually was thinking about and missing, um, you know, someone that was important to both of them. So, I, yes, we do need to share um, some of our distress in the service of modeling effective coping and for normalizing that you can talk about these things, that you can show some distress, but you can still then go and do what you have to do otherwise. Um, and I think one of the things we want to emphasize to kids is that, yes, it does hurt. Those feelings do create, you know, we call them grief triggers. They give us remembrances of the, of the person that dies, which also reminds us of our grief. But they are ways that we show our continued love. And so um, I think it's, it's unfortunate that you have to experience the grief, of course, but I think that's what you need to do to stay connected to the person you care about. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you for sharing that story. That's really powerful. It highlights most of the letters we get from kids are from children who are largely between the ages of six and 12. And that's a pretty wide developmental range. You've done a lot of research on children's understanding of death. Can you help our adult listeners understand what kids may or may not understand about death? 
what do they need to know in order to grieve? Sure. Well, there are four concepts that we talk about uh, when we're discussing children's conceptual understanding of death. And children need to understand these concepts in order to adjust effectively after a loss has occurred. I will say, though, most children learn these concepts uh, well by five to seven years of age. And I've worked with children that are even under two years of age who have learned these concepts. So I, I think they're well within the reach of six to 12 year olds. So it would but you may have uh, some children who have intellectual disability or have um, some other uh, neurodevelopmental issue that delays their acquisition some, um, but it, it would still be by a developmental age of about five to seven. But let me go over the four uh, concepts. The first is just that death is irreversible. Once someone dies, they don't come back to life again. We often refer to people going on long trips or going away for a period of time, but we children really have to understand that when someone has died, they don't come back to life again. Otherwise, they don't really have any reason to begin to mourn their absence because mourning involves acknowledging the fact that you have lost something permanently and figuring out not how to end your ties to the deceased, but rather how to readjust them so they're compatible with someone you're not going to see again during their lifetime. Um, television characters die and come back to life again, but that is not what happens in life. So you do need to make sure children understand that. But that is actually within the ability of a very young child to understand. I remember uh, talking to my own daughter when there was a close family member who had died, and she was 21 months old. And when I explained it to her, she didn't know what the word die meant. Um, she hadn't had that experience before. I hadn't explained it to her before. But when I did explain it, and again, she was 21 months, so she didn't have much vocabulary that I could really use to explain this. But finally, I said that the person was all gone. And as soon as I said that, she walked over to a bag, pulled out a book, one of her books, turned to the page where the toddler turns over the cereal bowl and it says all gone. She turned to that page, pointed and asked if that person was all gone. And I said, yes. And she never asked to see that person again, even though that was someone very close to her. So children can understand it at a very young age. Adults still have trouble accepting it, but you got to start with understanding it. So children can understand irreversibility. The next one is to understand that when someone dies, all life functions cease completely. If you have a child that's uh, had a death, let's say of a pet, and you suggest that they uh, put the dog's toy in with the box where you bury the dog, children may actually think that the dog will play with it. Otherwise, why would you do that? And so if the dog can play with it, that means that the dog is aware that the toy is there, which means they're also aware that they're buried underground. And it's the same thing if you draw a picture for your mother and put it in the coffin. Kids may think they can actually see it. Otherwise, again, why would you do it? And if they can see the picture, that means they can also see and, and they're aware that they're in a box, that they're buried underground. Um, and so you want children to understand that when someone has died, their body no longer works anymore. It doesn't feel pain. It's not hungry. It doesn't move. Um, and that's why we can bury it or turn it into ashes. Um, and so otherwise, children tend to become more preoccupied with the physical dis suffering of deceased. And you have to realize that children don't know what life functions are until they're, you know, around that age group that you're describing. So initially, children think everything that's alive, we call that animism. Um, and 
it's so then, you know, when we make comments like the television died, they might actually think the television's alive. And so we want to make sure we're careful on our, our language and that we also make sure that they understand what our life functions. So first, everything's alive. Then it's only things that move. Um, but then a plant wouldn't be alive, but a car would be. And of course, we have shows for children about cars being alive. And so they, you know, understandably will think then that uh, robots are alive. But, um, you know, again, a tree is not alive. So they have to understand what life functions are and, and know that they all end upon death. The last two are related. Uh, the third is understanding the real cause of death, because if children don't understand the cause of death, they're much more likely to think that they did something that caused the death uh, through something that they did, didn't do, thought, or wished. Um, and that leads to guilt. Or they may think that the person did something that caused the death, and that would lead to shame. Um, both of them lead to them not wanting to talk about it. And they also need to know that death is inevitable every living thing eventually dies. Because if certain people are selected to die, they must be selected because of something they did or didn't do or something the child did or didn't do. So we need children to understand that death is inevitable of all living things and have a basic understanding of why that individual died. So those are the things you wanna, you'll wanna go over because while children by five to seven to understand those concepts naturally, um, they actually will still question them when the death has occurred. And making sure that they have an understanding of those, I think, decreases some of the unnecessary suffering. There's a certain amount of necessary suffering when you grieve, but we can eliminate or at least decrease some of the unnecessary despair. Yeah, yeah. Well, some of those conversations aren't easy, but I understand why they're so important. So let's talk a little bit more about guilt. You told us that often um, children experience a little bit of guilt. And I think when parents talk to their kids about grief, they expect to hear some sadness or maybe some anger, but they might be surprised at guilt. Can you tell us why and what grownups can do to help children who are feeling guilty? Yes. So first off, you need to recognize that guilt is common. And what you want to do is um, try and look for it and reassure children of the lack of a need to feel guilty. Very young children in particular are very egocentric. So they think they are the center of the universe and things occur for them and through their actions, through their thoughts, through their beliefs, what they do, what they don't do. That leads to a lot of what we call magical thinking. Children don't understand why things occur and so they assume because they're egocentric that they cause things to occur. Um, so what happens, though, is when a death occurs of someone close to them, they don't often understand the reason why that person died. And if you don't know why something happened and you're very egocentric and you use magical thinking, then you will assume that you caused it. And again, it's something you did, didn't do, should have done or could have done might have changed the outcome. And therefore, children often feel responsible for a death as that has occurred when there is no logical reason. I remember um, I was... Um, helping one child after his brother had died from sudden infant death syndrome. He, he was about eight years old. He was a very precocious eight-year-old. He was actually in a um, all-male finishing school for elementary school-age students in the city, you know, the highest-ranked school. And his parents were, they were wonderful. You know, his, his mother was a child psychologist. The father was a faculty at the medical school. I mean, or worked at the medical school. They, they were 
wonderful parents that had done everything possible to explain things to their children. Um, and this, this child really understood what had happened um, to his brother as best, I think, as any eight-year-old could. So I actually remember on the first visit, he looked at me and he said, you know, my mom's going to have another child. And I said, yeah, she's, she looks like she's pretty far in her pregnancy. And I said, what do you think about that? And he, he looked at me and he goes, I think she's trying to replace my brother that died. And I said, can you do that? And he said, of course you can't do that. But that's what I think she thinks. So here's this eight-year-old, uh, you know, has a precocious understanding of the of potential motivations of adults. And he, he told me his brother died of SIDS. He said that stands for sudden infant death syndrome. They don't know the cause, but they're doing research on it. We hope one day to figure this out. I mean, he had been told everything appropriately. Um, and had really wonderfully supportive parents. And so, you know, we went through uh, the first session. He wasn't having any adjustment difficulties. He had, uh, he had talked about it. He was coping as well as any child could. Um, and then we came back for the second se session. I showed him a film strip. He talked about it. He said, oh, I had many of those same feelings, but they actually went away. Uh, you know, he, he said, but thank you. It was good talking about this. So finally, at the end of the second session, I just looked at him and I said, so why did your brother die? And he looked at me and he said, because I went to camp that day. So if kids don't know why it happens, and Sid's is death of unknown cause, so we really don't know the cause, they fall back on their own actions or inactions. And in fact, adults do the same thing. In some ways, at least at an unconscious level, it feels safer to accept responsibility for a death than to acknowledge you had no control over it. Because if you had no control over it, that means it could happen again and you couldn't prevent it. So, it's, so by assuming guilt, it actually gives you an illusion of control that may decrease your anxiety about it happening again right away. But it's an illusion of control, so it doesn't work. It doesn't prevent other people from dying, and it just leaves you with guilt, which impairs adjustment. So I often say to kids, when somebody dies, uh, we often feel very badly. And when we feel badly, we often wonder if we did anything bad. Thoughts and feelings don't make people, some make people die. But a lot of kids tell me that they, they feel that way. And then I usually turn to them and say, have you ever had times when you felt like that? Now, I said that at a presentation to third and fourth graders. So right during, right in the middle of this age group that you're referring to, um, because the teacher asked me to come and talk to the class about how people feel and adjust to a death that occurred, maybe 45 minute presentation. And this teacher actually had them write letters to me. And I still remember one of the letters just said, Dear Dr. Schoenfeld, thank you for coming to my class and talking about what happens when someone dies. Now I know it's not my fault my father killed himself. And then she wrote, Have a happy Valentine's Day and signed her name. So I'm not suggesting that a simple comment or a brief presentation is sufficient to help children cope with the death of someone they love and the guilt associated with it. But it actually is enough for individuals to start to at least express or children to express their guilt feelings, which is gonna be the first step in managing that and helping them cope with it. Mm. You're building a very compelling case for listening to children and asking questions and maybe seeking um, some professional help for their children when they're um, grieving. Thank you for sharing that. 
After this short break, we'll continue this conversation. If you like what you're hearing and want to know more about what kids think and feel, we have good news. This podcast is based on a soon-to-be-published book titled Dear Highlights, What Adults Can Learn from 75 Years of Letters and Conversations with Kids. It's publishing in August and available for pre-order now, wherever you buy your books. When we answer letters from kids who are grieving, um, we often suggest that they do something to help them keep that person's memory alive, such as creating a scrapbook or a memory book with photos and mementos from their time together. Are these kinds of things helpful to children? And are there other specific and concrete uh, activities or conversations an adult can have with their kids to help them express and process their grief? I guess we're talking about things that you know might be um, kinetic or things they can actually do. Yes, so I think that you do want to maintain your connections to the individual who has died. And you know, years ago they used to talk about the fact, and sometimes they still talk about this, that um, children have prolonged grief if they have strong yearning um, to, be, to be reconnected with an individual who has died. But what we talk about is that kids really need these continuing bonds. They stay attached to people who have died um, that are important in their lives. And so, yes, it will trigger some of the feelings when you think about them again, but those triggers are also associated with memories of the person and staying connected is useful. I, I remember talking to one girl, she was an adolescent, and she said that it had been about three or four years her, since her father had died. And she still had these grief triggers. And she said, but you know, I'm kind of glad because it keeps me connected with my dad. So for very young children, let's say the death has occurred when the child was two years old or a year and a half, um, and, and maybe now they're writing their letter at six or seven or eight because they're starting to think about it and process their feelings related to that loss, they may actually lack some basic memories of the person that died. So it might be their father or mother or a sibling. They don't remember what they look like or they don't remember the sound of their voice or they don't remember this, what it felt like to be hugged by them uh, or what they smelled like. And so what we want to do is preserve those memories. And, and for very young children, we can actually create the memories through our story, through our storytelling, through looking through pictures, putting them in scrapbooks, painting uh, pictures, drawing pictures. What we want to do is build those memories, preserve those memories, particularly, of course, the positive memories, and then kids will uh, maintain those connections. I, I remember talking, I was doing a research project looking at children's continuing bonds and how you would measure it, and I just found that there's so many ways kids use. Um, some children are using tattoos. Um, some children are um, using um, food as a way of remembering. I, I remember talking to one young boy, and um, I think he was Mexican. His, his heritage was Mexican, and they used to go to a Mexican restaurant, uh, and their dad would order his favorite dish and ask his son to try it, and his son said, I didn't like it. And every year he'd make me try it. Well, after his dad died, what he did was he went back to the restaurant and he ordered that meal each year on his birthday. And he says, and now I love it. So I've seen kids uh, pick up their parents' hobbies, um, increase their uh, emphasis on academics because they want to get into the alma mater, um, the college that their dad went to or mother went to. 
Um, I've seen, I had one kid whose dad used to take in stray animals. And so he continued that mission, even though I think he was like seven at the time. So he really couldn't do much, but he said, but I'm going to try and I'm going to do what I can. And when I get older, I'm going to do that. So I think that we can um, maintain our ties with the positive aspects of the individual that died, what resonates with us. And we can do that through arts and crafts and other activities and drama and writing and journaling. But we can also do it through our mission in our lives, through what we devote ourselves to, to what we find important. Wow, that's a beautiful answer. And I I love the idea of um, building memories as well as preserving the memories we have. Um, Yeah, thank you for that. Um, Over the last year, many people who have experienced loss haven't had the opportunity to have the ritual of a gathering like a funeral or a sitting shiva. As COVID restrictions begin to lift, some families might be scheduling those types of events, and they may be wondering whether or not it's a good idea to include children. How do you feel about that? Sure. So in in general, children value the participation and benefit from the participation in funerals, wakes, sitting shiva, and other rituals that we use for mourning, just like adults do. But what I uh, tell people is they should explain to children uh, what they might experience, witness, hear, or see uh, during these experiences so they feel more comfortable and more prepared. And that isn't just that, you know, you may see a body uh, in an open box uh, and what somebody looks like when they've died. It it might be that you may hear funny stories and people laughing. You will see people crying. Um, Actually, I remember as as a child, my family is um, mixed. So um, Orthodox Jewish dad and a Sicilian very Italian uh, Catholic mother. And so when I would go to funerals on different sides of the family, it would range from one aspect. to I, I actually remember asking my mother why a spouse was trying to get into the coffin with her husband who had died. That was on the Sicilian side. And my mother said, yeah, they do that. Don't worry about it. But that was very different than what I had seen from my father's side. Um, And so just helping them understand what they're going to see and and experience, I think, is helpful. And then I recommend that, that you appoint somebody to guide the child through the experience who's not um, personally grieving themselves to the same extent. So this might be a more distant relative, but it could be a neighbor, a babysitter, someone from the school, you know, their music teacher, someone who's there to meet the child's needs so the child can participate to the level they wish, but not feel compelled or forced to do anything that's uncomfortable. So they can come to the wake and spend five minutes by the coffin, but then just stand by the door handing out mass cards. And there's an adult comp- accompanying them, and they don't. They can go for a walk if they want to, um, and they're not disrupting, you know, the ceremony. I tell people that children uh, should be invited but should never be forced or coerced to do anything that feels uncomfortable to them. And if possible, I think it's really useful to make sure that the child can do something that seems meaningful to them um, in the ceremony. It, It doesn't mean that they have to read a eulogy, but it may be that they pick a flower that's going to be placed on the coffin or that they help to select, um, you know, a photograph that's going to be put on display. Something so that it feels like this 
if it's their parent that died, this is their ceremony too. And they've had some input into it. Children who are left out of those experiences often feel that there is something very important that they weren't able to share. They don't get the support of extended family and friends. Um, and also they often fantasize that something horrible occurred, so horrible that they couldn't witness. Um, and so they will think, well, there must be something about that funeral where um, what happened to my mother was so horrible that I wasn't allowed to see it. And based on the horror stories and movies that they hear about and see, their fantasies are going to be much worse than what the actual reality was. So I don't think we're shielding children from anything when we keep them out of funerals. What I think we're doing is neglecting them. And I've had kids who, I had one girl, for example, her mother uh, was murdered and um, it was a single parent and she had to relocate to another city. Um, so they relocated her quickly that she never went back to the apartment. Uh, she didn't have any of her mother's belongings and she was in another state and hadn't been to the funeral. She was just very angry that she had been excluded from all of this. And it wasn't until we talked about it with her aunt and uncle who are now her guardians that they said, well, we'll go back to the apartment. We'll get some things for her. We'll take her to the cemetery. And it wasn't until we did that that she, because she'd been acting up a bit beforehand. And afterwards she was like, they now respect what I need. I think she was about nine years old. And she said, so I know they love me and they want, then they will be raising me. And once she felt they were, you know, acknowledging her needs, she was much more able to be, uh, to feel a part of that family. You know, most of us grown-ups, particularly parents, hate to see the kids we love suffer. And many times I think we rush in to make sure kids feel better. It's really important that we give kids space to feel sad about a loss, isn't it? Yes. We, you don't, this is a common thing that people do is they often try and cheer up people who are grieving. Um, I always tell people, if anything that starts with at least is probably something you shouldn't be saying uh, to someone who's acutely grieving. At least he's not in pain anymore. At least you still have a mother. Um, at least, uh, you know, whatever that is, there usually are attempts to minimize uh, what's actually occurred. And to be honest, a lot of times we do that because first off, we do want kids to be happy, but something you know tragic has happened and, they're, and it really wouldn't even be appropriate for them just to be happy. But I think what happens is we don't like to see them upset. It's the same thing with adults too, but even more so for kids. So we cheer them up so that we don't have to witness their grief. That may make us feel better as a witness, but it doesn't help the child because they really need to know that it's okay to express their grief, it's safe to express their grief, and that um, over time, their grief will improve in the sense that it will be less intense. It will probably always be tinged with sadness, um, but you know, over time, the positive thoughts we have about people start to build to, a, to be a greater percent of what we think about uh, as opposed to the grief or sometimes even the trauma of the loss but we have to allow kids to get there on their own time course um, and not try and cheer them up, um, but instead allow them to express their grief, to be there, not to judge it, but just to be there to support them. Mm -hmm. 
And are there things that adults can do to renew their own energy and uh, renew their own hope so that they can really be there for their kids? Yeah, well, part of it is to recognize, first off, that, that adults also need to get their own supports uh, for dealing with a grief. In most situations, when kids are grieving a great deal, it's the adults are too. It's usually a close family um, member or a close friend of the family. There are some situations, obviously, with older children in particular, where they may uh, be grieving the loss of a peer or a classmate or a teacher that may not be impacting um, the adults in the family as much, but in most situations, the most significant losses affect the entire family. And so adults sometimes need to get supports for themselves so that they feel more comfortable in, in terms of talking about this uh, with their children. I think the issue is that children, if they see their uh, parent grieving, particularly after the death of the other parent, their first inclination may be to try and support that adult um, so that that individual is able to stay uh, and continue in their parenting role. The young kids pick that up from very young ages. They will often reassure their parents that they're going to be able to take care of everything, even if mom or dad is not alive, and that they're going to be okay. And they start supporting the parent uh, who's surviving uh, before they even allow themselves to express or experience their own grief. I had one uh, 16-year-old whose brother died in a very tragic accident. And um, what was happening was his, his mother was literally leaning on him. I mean, she was um, getting a lot of her support from him. She was married, uh, the husband was there too, and I, I think he was supportive, but this was a very empathic 16-year-old. And I remember he did not grieve for two months. And then once his mother went back to work, a couple of weeks later, he started to grieve. He had problems in school, couldn't concentrate, didn't sleep well. And when I asked him why, he said, I don't know why. I didn't experience anything for a couple months. And then I just said, well, sometimes it's hard to see your mother grieve. And he looked at me and he said, if I had one more night where she cried herself to sleep on my shoulders, I was going to lose it. So he was literally supporting his mother emotionally and physically. And he could not even come, he could not even think about his own grief. He had to take care of his mom first. So you'll see that with very young children. Um, so children know that when an adult seems not to be coping and they're overwhelmed, that the most important thing, particularly after one parent has died and you're worried the second one's going to die, is you have to take care of that parent. And so I think parents can cry in front of their kids, and they should, and they should show their distress, and they can share some of their distress with children. But I think that if they're really struggling, it's good for them to have someone else to talk to doesn't it doesn't have to be a professional. It could be a friend, it could be a colleague, it could be another relative, it could be someone from a faith-based organization or from a bereavement support group. Um, it could be a professional as well. Um, but I don't want to pathologize grief. Grief has intense emotions, but it is a normative experience. But I just think that adults should make sure that they're getting the support that they need so they can, can do the best that they can. And then that gives them more capacity to be able to help their children. Mm, yeah. It's surprising sometimes what kids pick up on when we find out that they're picking up on things we're not saying and we're not even, we don't even, we aren't even conscious that we're giving them some messages, but they're very, very intuitive and observant. It highlights, we believe, that children are the world's most important people. 
And if we really honored that idea as a society, what would we change to make the world better for grieving children? First off, we would recognize there are grieving children. A lot of times people think it's rare, but actually about 5% of children experience the death of a parent by age 16 and 90%. Nine out of 10 children experience the death of a family member or friend by the time they finish high school. This was prior to the pandemic. So these are common experiences. Children form attachments and relationships with large number of people and everyone eventually dies. And so there's a good chance that children are going to be grieving. We need to recognize that. We also have to accept that we can talk to and support children and that all adults that interact with children should have the ability to be supportive of a child that's grieving. We don't want any child to grieve alone. So I think if, if we really were to change society, we would make this a topic, not that some people can talk about, but that everyone can acknowledge and provide support. Not everyone needs to do counseling. We wouldn't want that. But just to allow a child to know that if they bring this up or it's occurred in their lives, that adults who they care about will care about them and at least acknowledge that it's happened and find out if there was a way that they can assist them. So it might be that a teacher talks about academic accommodations and supports. They don't have to do grief counseling, but they can certainly be sensitive and empathic for a child who is grieving. So, you know, I will tell you, I, I often show this videotape of a teacher. She talks about how a student came back to class after his mother was hospitalized for a week and he was out for that week. And when he returned to class, um, he told the teacher that his mother had died in the hospital. And she didn't know that beforehand. So she was kind of taken aback and she said, you know, I'm so sorry. I think it was a middle school aged child. And she said, I, I can't imagine what this is like. And he apparently just got embarrassed and said, please don't do this. So she said, okay, I'm, I'm not going to. And she said, but please know my door is always open and I'm here to talk with you. And everyone in the school is in the same position. But he didn't come back to talk about it. But he did stop by after class, probably about three weeks later, just to thank her. And when she said, what did I do? And he said, you were here and I didn't have to talk about it. So she, what she told me was, she said, it's kind of like a dance. I take the first step and if the student's ready, they take the next step and we continue the dance. And if they're not ready, that's okay. We can just stop and listen to the music together. And I think that's what we're going to be doing during this pandemic. As kids transition back into school, back into after school groups, youth groups, faith-based groups, we need to be able to listen to the music together with them. We need to be able to be with them while they're grieving and acknowledge it. And maybe we don't feel completely comfortable, but we feel capable and we feel competent. Um, and I think that's what kids need. They need to be in environments where adults are attuned to what their needs are when one of the most difficult things in their life has happened, which is what happens when you're grieving the death of someone close. Let's listen to the music together with our children. Yeah. Thank you, Dr. Schoenfeld. Uh, thank you for joining us today, and thank you for all the good things you do for kids and families. Thank you. We are honored to be able to elevate kids' voices and share with you some of what they share with us. Whether a child's concern is big or small, unique or universal, serious or sure to easily work itself out, it's real to the child and matters deeply. 
We've come to see that in every letter kids have sent to us over the years, there are implicit, overarching questions embedded within. Do you care? Am I loved? Do I have a place in the world? A place in the lives of the people I love? We hope kids believe us when we say in many more words, yes, yes, yes. Let's all lean in to give kids what they really need and want. More listening, more understanding, and more connecting. This podcast is an extension of the book, Dear Highlights, What Adults Can Learn from 75 Years of Letters and Conversations with Kids. Publishing this August and available for pre-order now, everywhere books are sold. If you enjoyed this podcast, don't forget to subscribe and leave a review to help us reach more grown-ups who care about kids. This episode on children's grief concludes season one of our podcast. Please check back in a few weeks for the launch of season two. And if you have a topic you'd like us to discuss, please email me at christine at highlights.com. Thanks for listening to Dear Highlights.